Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB, aka Danielle Bezalel. Let's get into it. Hey, y'all. Welcome to part one of two of Sex Ed on screen and on stage. In this first part, I have a hilarious and meaningful combo with my sex ed idol and the pun queen of the century, Alex Fox. Alex is a multi-award-winning broadcaster, journalist, and sex educator. She's a script consultant on hit Netflix series Sex Education, co-host of BBC Radio 1's comedy podcast, Unexpected Fluids, and has answered listeners' most intimate questions as an X-rated agony aunt on The Modern Man Show for almost half a decade. She's funny, goofy, and an all-around wonderful human being. Here I am with Alex Fox. Let's just get started, Alex, with you just kind of saying your um, your name, you know, who you are, and kind of lay out all of the amazing things that you do for work right now. Sure thing. Uh, my name is Alex Fox, um, which usefully rhymes with phallic Cox, as I'm <laughs> someone who speaks about uh, what people have in their pants and what they do with their pants off on a daily basis. Uh, I am a journalist slash broadcaster slash sex educator. Uh, in fact, it says on my CV that I have more slashes in my job description than uh, a werewolf's shower curtain or... Um, <laughs> I don't know, Edward Scissorhands' penis after a furious <laughs> masturbatory session. Uh, so these days I am sort of spread spread so thinly that I'm practically transparent, I suppose. I do, I'm self-employed and I do all sorts of jobs. Um, the average week for me involves uh, being at BBC Radio 1, where I co-host a podcast called Unexpected Fluids, uh, which is a comedy show with an educational angle where we share people's real-life tales of sexual fails uh, and then use those as a springboard for hopefully constructive educational conversation about relationships and sexuality and sexual experimentation. Uh, for almost half a decade now as well I've been working on another podcast called The Modern Man Man with two N's because it's named after the main host uh, Mr Ollie Mann a famous radio presenter here in the UK Uh, my job is to uh, look after a section of the show called The Foxhole where I'm essentially an erotic agony aunt and I answer people's questions about everything from uh, how to have more comfortable sex following treatment for cancer uh, to what to do if you want to introduce Introduce your partner to your fetish and you secretly crave to put both of their feet in your mouth or whatever. <laughs> um, I'm a very proud ambassador for two charities, one called Brooke, which is a young people's sexual well-being charity. Um, it's recently actually expanded into talking about mental well-being as well. And I'm really pleased to say that because I think uh, we often treat physical relationships as separate to emotional ones. Uh, and in fact, how we feel about ourselves as well as how our bodies are feeling uh, are very closely interlinked. I also work with a charity called Bloody Good Periods, who, as the name suggests, are uh, concerned with um, solving the problem of period poverty and making sure that everyone who needs uh, menstrual supplies can get their hands on them, no matter uh, how much money they've got or what their circumstances are. And we do a lot of menstruation education as well about things like how to use menstrual cups or uh, how periods actually work. Because a lot of people don't know the basic ins and outs of um, of what's going on inside their bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, elsewhere, I'm a script consultant on the popular Netflix show Sex Education. 
and I'm working on a new project at the moment, which I don't know how much I can tell you about, but maybe I'll give you a little hint and a tint okay. here and there as we converse. Yeah. Um, I, what else can I tell you? I'm working on a couple of books at the moment, uh, and I write for all sorts of magazines, including Stylist, Cosmo, Vogue. Um, basically if it's got the word sex in the title somewhere, there's about a 67% chance that I'll be associated with it somewhere down the line. I'm like chlamydia. Everybody's had me at some point, practically. (laughs) Oh my God. You are incredible. You are just where I see hopefully myself in like 20 years, even though we can't be that much different in age. So you are just my goals is what I'll say. Um, Bless you. I'm actually, I think I'm a little older than people presume. I am because I've got quite an upbeat uh, sense of I have quite an upbeat style of talking you and do. Um, an entirely toddler-inspired wardrobe as well. I'm actually 37. Okay, um, all right. But because I do a lot of uh, youth-centered work, I think people often presume uh, that I must be more closer to my fetal self than I actually am. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, incredible. Thank you so much for laying all that out for us. You are amazing. You're doing such incredible work. And oh, bless you. I apologize that trying to summarize my no. uh, my work is quite difficult. No, um, My CV is longer than Rapunzel's hair at this point. <laughs> That's so great. Um, I would love to start by talking about sex education because what a show. As you know, as everyone knows who's seen it, it is so remarkable and I am just so jazzed on it and just like absolutely love it. I think it's depicted so many parts of sex education. It's such a beautiful, inclusive, challenging, hard way. Um, and I would love to hear more about your role as a script advisor for them. Um, and if you could just kind of share, like for people who haven't seen the show, what is the show about? And then can you talk about like what you do, um, in your role? DB, I am so pleased to hear that you think the show is a plus. Oh, it's amazing. Um, I am incredibly proud to be associated with it too. Um, I think it manages to balance a really warm, affectionate, inclusive sense of humour. And let's face it, sex is often fumbled and jumbled and clumsy and kind of ridiculous. It's Mm -hmm. often two or more people throwing their naked or semi-clad bodies at (laughs) each other and just hoping that something lands in the right place. (laughs) Um, So often in the media... Uh, sex and and relationships are depicted in this very glossy, polished, perfect way. And for most people, that's just not true. That's not reality. And I think sex education does a wonderful job of exploring that in a way that's very inviting and inclusive and and quite sweet as well, but without Mm -hmm. being patronizing. Um, I think a lot of programs aimed at younger people can uh, can accidentally land uh, too far one end of the spectrum between being really gritty and shocking and attention grabbing in a way that can almost be threatening to young people as though they feel like if their lives aren't that wild and out there then they Mm -hmm. must be somehow underperforming whereas at the other end of the scale you've got shows that are perhaps um, a little bit twee or cutesy or don't credit young people with the depth of feeling and the the breadth of emotion and the intelligence that, Mm -hmm. that that they have Um, And I'm really proud, particularly to be working on sex education as something that seems to resonate so well with so many people and that brings up really important topics in a way that lands uh, 
that lands just just right as far as I'm concerned. And the feedback that I've got from audiences seems to seems to think that you know a lot of them a lot of them really agree with me on that one. Um, so I came to be involved in the show uh, at quite an early stage. Um, the original writer and the team of uh, script writers around her um, invited me just to go for a chat for about three, I think we were in the room for about three or four hours mm -hmm. because they wanted to pick my brains and trust me, you need several pairs of rubber gloves to delve into into, into the crevices of my skull. There's all <laughs> sorts of dirty things lurking there. Um, they wanted to actually talk to me about um, Jean's character. So that's um, Otis's... The, 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 the mom. Main... Yeah, Do you, shall I lay out what the show is about? Please, yeah, go for heard it. About it. So for anyone who doesn't know, the premise of sex education is that it centers around our protagonist, Otis, who's in his sort of late teens. He's still at school uh, and he lives with his mum, Jean, who is a sex, uh, sex therapist. Uh, because Otis's bedroom is over her therapy room in the family home, he inadvertently hears all of the uh, the sessions that she has with clients uh, and thus picks up a lot of secondhand information. And just by dint of living with somebody who has such a, a vast plethora of knowledge, he himself is very well informed uh, about the ins and outs and ups and downs and left rights <laughs> and not so rights, the wrongs of sex. <laughs> Um, however, in contrast with his huge uh, factual knowledge, Otis himself doesn't have a lot of practical experience. And in fact, he's so overexposed and saturated by the subject of sex, thanks to his interactions with his mum, that he initially fears that he might be asexual. The thought of sex is something that he associates rather Freudianly with his mother and the thought of actually doing it with another person or even masturbating with himself um, is something that fills him with fear and trepidation and just squicks and icks him out. Mm -hmm. um, things start to get more interesting when his friends at school realise that Otis has this huge untapped lake of information uh, inside of him that every single teenager at that school want at their school wants to know uh, and so they devise a scheme where um they charge for Otis's time as a kind of <laughs> ad hoc, ad lib sex therapist inside the toilets of, of the high school uh, and, uh, and get people to pay for, for advice sessions with him on a one-on-one -on -one basis. As a result, Otis becomes party to uh, lots of intimate knowledge about all of the relationships and interactions uh, that are going on in school. And he is prompted to explore his own sexuality and his own feelings, including for one of his very best friends uh, as the show unfolds. Uh, that was such a great description. Okay, amazing. So <laughs> so you were, were kind of brought in to talk about Jean, his mom. So where, what happens next? Yeah, initially I was brought in just to have a chat with the writers um, because they wanted to make sure that Jean, the, the character of Otis's mum, the sex therapist, uh, was realistic. They wanted to check the kind of language that she was using, um, the, the books that she might be referring to, the, the, um, the sources that might be influential to her in order to make her character believable. Um, but as we got to chatting, they realised that um, in addition to my uh, sort of instructional work, if you will, as a sex educator, 
educator, um, I had a lot of real life stories from young people. Uh, and the more we talked, the more we realized that those stories that came from true life experiences would be perfect to inform uh, the concerns, the worries, the excitements, the situations of the people in the school within the show. Mm -hmm. um, so I was then, my role expanded, much to my delight, um, to the point where we're now doing season two and I get sent certain parts of the script uh, to, again, check the language, make sure that the kinds of things that young people are talking about, uh, they're using the right slang terms, because there's nothing more naff that when a show tries to connect with <laughs> a youth audience and then, yeah, and then accidentally uses a term that hasn't seen the light of day since 1983. <laughs> you know, it's just really cringe, isn't it? But equally, it has to be seen not to be trying too hard because it's it's a little bit awkward if um, a show obviously written by adults is is uh, trying to wedge in language in a way that's just that's not believable. So we we make sure that it sounds natural. Uh, and then I'm also uh, these days uh, responsible for suggesting some of the plot lines uh, and some of the throwaway remarks and, and some of the pop culture references that will be in there. Uh, and um, I get to suggest some of the jokes as well. So if season two is a, a fuck ton less funny than season one, you'll know it's my fault. <laughs> oh my God. That's so awesome. I cannot wait to see it. Um, and I'm wondering, Do you know, Danielle, yes. what? I got sent, um, Netflix sent me the entirety of season one before it went live. Oh my God. And at the time I was spending Christmas with my parents who live in France, I'd run myself a huge bubble bath. I had a glass of red wine and my fingers crossed. Um, I thought I'll, I'll watch this show and I really, really hope that it's as good as I think it has the potential to be. I was in the bath so long that by the end of it, I looked like a California raisin, but I just couldn't. I think I topped up the hot water about 64,000 times. The show was so good that I couldn't get out of the bathroom until I'd watched almost the entirety of it. And it was several hours oh, long. Oh, exactly. I think my parents thought I'd drowned. But it was such a pleasure to see how our initial conversations between me and the rest of the writing team had translated to this wonderful drama. And there were most moments that I knew had come from me like um one of the particular one of the ones that really springs to mind is um there's a scene where somebody calls through a hallway against the background of lockers I think about something about um someone putting their penis inside a watermelon <laughs> <laughs> and that came from my work with young people some of whom had told me that there was a trend at their school whereby guys would um buy a watermelon uh, burrow a hole in it microwave it to bring it up to somewhere close to room temperature oh and then and then um use it as a sex aid yeah so they'd, they'd fuck a fruit the problem was number one that it's quite hard to microwave a watermelon for the right amount of time if you risk either burning your dick or exploding a large amount of fruit sure. inside your kitchen uh, and secondly a lot of these young men told me that their mums were very very surprised that suddenly these young men who they'd been nagging for years to get their five a day 
of fruit and veg had taken an uh, an unlikely interest in a very high amount of melon in their <laughs> diet. Uh, it's also quite hard to dispose of a, a post-fucked melon in, with any degree of subtlety. <laughs> sure. Like, where, <laughs> but it was where great did that to see come that from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, honestly, the lengths that certain uh, young boys and, and teenagers in London are going to to dispose of and hide of uh, fruit that they have enjoyed with the, the fruits of their loins is <laughs> it, really quite remarkable. So let's get into what, what like representations in sex education do you think are most novel or like, were you most excited to see when you could not get out of the bath for season one? Like what were you so excited that like ended up staying in the show that all of these like young people and like older people alike we're watching what what's like most exciting for you in season one genuinely yes i could give you a list longer than a telephone directory of things that i loved about the show um but some of the highlights that really touched my heart as well as my parts um were first up I love the scene of uh, Amy discovering how to make herself climax through masturbation. The best. Um, A lot of people I know now use the slang term buttering the crumpet in (laughs) honor of Amy and her her masturbatory adventures. Um, I've heard from a lot of women who fed back to me that it was great to see a woman actually um, finishing off by laying on her front. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in the rare occasions when female masturbation is represented in film and TV, and that the, that really is rare, we, we see quite a lot of depictions of male self-pleasure, but mm-hmm. not a lot of female solo sex. Um, it's often them laying on their backs, whereas Amy is shown in lots of different positions and using lots of different techniques and so many people people found that um, relatively throwaway kind of innocuous um, ostensibly um, quite minor part of the show to be really life-changing it made them feel like the things that they were doing in private were not wrong or weird or strange and that can be so reassuring especially if you're uh, going through puberty or a sensitive time in your life when you can feel like you are the odd one out amongst humanity so just that uh, just that one scene that ends in crumpets really took the biscuit for a lot of people um (laughs) I also really appreciated Eric, who is one of the the gay characters within the show. I love that his storyline isn't based on the jeopardy of coming out to his friends and family. Mm-hmm. In a lot of shows and movies, or particularly the ones from my youth, if there was a gay character, their the arc of their tale always it was always um, centered around would their friends or their family find out their sexuality? That was always the story. And after they came out, that was kind of like the end of it. Mm-hmm. We know that in real life, although coming out is very important, for many people it's a celebratory moment, for others it's a, a real a real difficult one that causes a lot of sadness. I don't want to downplay how important that is that within uh, many queer people's lives. But it's not the end of the LGBTQ story. There are other challenges that follow once mm-hmm. you're out. And I really love that Eric is helping to portray that. You, de- you continue to develop as a, as a person. You continue to find out things about yourself beyond 
just that you are queer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your character expands. Um, Your interactions with people continue to be both both challenging and rewarding. And I love that Eric as a character shows the true depth and breadth of LGBTQ people. Um, Yes. I want to see more of that. And I also really like that... um, Eric's father is concerned about his sexuality, but not in a way where he straightforward condemns him and shames him for it. Mm -hmm. It's more nuanced than that. It's more complex. He's concerned for his son's safety Mm -hmm. and he wants his son to be true to himself, but he also uh, wants him to be secure in the world. And I think the way that that's explored, where people's opinions aren't always black and white or clearly right or wrong, is again really important. Um, So often the, the relationship between LGBTQ characters and their families is portrayed as either 100% fine or absolutely awful, when mm-hmm. in real life there are more shades of grey than that and more shades of the rainbow. And I think it's a real credit to the show that it manages to, to acknowledge that. Um, I like that there's a storyline that shows that lesbian sex isn't always straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, Although some research has shown that the orgasm gap uh, is a lot smaller between couples involving two women than it is involving it, with those involving a man and a woman, um, there's often the assumption that uh, women who sleep with women must be better at making each other climax or better at giving each other pleasure because they have the same sorts of bodies. Um, I actually think it's more about the fact that the types of sex they have aren't overly focused on penetration and mm-hmm. perhaps uh, they're, they're more open to honest, frank communication. And I think a lot of women are less threatened by the use of sex toys. They don't see them as um, a competition to be contended with. They see them as tools that can help them and their partners uh, experience greater pleasure. Um, But I do think it's a a misunderstanding about lesbians or or any type of woman that also likes to to play with women, that they have some inherent, innate, um, infallible knowledge of all other women's women's bits and bobs, because we know that, in fact, women aren't all the same. We -hmm. don't all get stimulated the same ways. The same things don't turn us on. And sex education does a really good job of saying that just because you're a lesbian doesn't mean that you should be expected to automatically know everything. It's hard too, even though there might not be something hard involved in the sex you're having. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. Right, of course. Well, there are a couple of other things that um, perhaps have particular resonance to me. Um, I like that Otis, um, as a character shows that male arousal and masturbation and orgasm can also be complex. Mm -hmm. Um, That's another thing that is often portrayed to be extremely straightforward and simple. And I think we're really doing men a disservice by um, assuming and presuming that um, the way that their bodies work are, they get it up, 
they wank it off, they jizz it out and it's game over. <laughs> um, there's a lot more going on in a lot of men's heads and in their beds than that. And I think if we start to talk about those kind of things at a young age, it makes it a lot easier for men to explore things like erectile dysfunction or asexuality or fetish or uh, porn, uh, the influence of porn. There are so many complicating factors within the male experience that a lot of people can feel very, again, very isolated and alone in, in, in going through because they've been given the impression by society and the media that as men, they ought to be incredibly simplistic in their sexuality. Um, I would also add that as a sex educator myself, I love that Jean's character is fallible. <laughs> there are things that she has to learn too. She's flawed, and totally. She's an absolute badass, kick-ass, incredible woman, mm-hmm. but her own relationships aren't so smooth. She needs some help Yamak with her boundaries. Many times soon. Yes. Pardon? She needs help with her boundaries, like with Otis, and yeah. also, yeah, she she doesn't want to get attached to any men, and you know, she has she has a lot of kind of things going on with her character too. I often feel threatened that when people find out that I'm a sex educator, they assume that I must know absolutely everything there is to know about sex. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like assuming that someone will know everything there is to know about the human race. (laughs) Sex is so varied and there are so many aspects of it, whether it's the medical, the psychological, the the emotional trends, you know, uh, the, the... there are so many ways that it can be approached and so many different things to learn. And of course it's, it's constantly evolving and different for everybody. And for me, it's really nice to see myself on screen. If we're talking about diversity and inclusion and representation and identity, I see bits of myself in Jean, including the fact that she ain't perfect. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Babeland is a feminist-owned and operated sex toy shop that focuses on both pleasure and education. With a diverse catalog of sex toys, kink gear, books, lingerie, massage products, and more, plus free events and workshops at each of their four store locations, Babeland is your one-stop sex-positive shop. You can use code DBBABE, all one word, in stores or online at babeland.com for 15% off one item. Are you a cancer survivor or do you know someone who is? Earlier severe menopause and painful vaginal sex can often be an undiscussed and unexpected side effect to cancer treatment. Luckily, Millie can help. Millie is the gentlest dilator on the market with user-controlled in-vagina expansion, enabling gradual increases in size with only one insertion. Getting better is hard. Don't shortchange your progress. More than 50% of sexually inactive Millie users return to sex within three months of using Millie, with 30% reduction in pain and anxiety. Use Millie to have more pleasurable sex and break your cycle of pain. Go to www.milliemedical.com to check it out. Need a new sex toy? Spectrum Boutique is an awesome, sex-positive toy store that has a no-nonsense approach to sexuality and sexual education. They believe that fulfilling your sexual desires is an important self-affirmation and human right, and they welcome all identities, curiosities, and experience levels. Go to SpectrumBoutique.com and use discount code SEXEDWITHDB10 to get their latest goodies. 
let's continue um, by talking about when you were growing up. Um, do you remember any like media representations about sex or sexuality that stuck with you, even either good ones or bad ones? Well, I was born in 1982, so when I was knee-high to a grasshopper, um, I remember some of the first really potent, influential influences uh, on me uh, in terms of media coming via music. My parents had these massive freestanding floor speakers and a record player. And I recall them putting on a Prince album and me being sat, I must have been so small, I was sitting really, really close to the speaker and um, the track If I Was Your Girlfriend was playing and there's a bit where Prince just speaks and says, um, oh, I'm trying to remember exactly what he's talking about. He says something about, um, would you undress for me and... Uh, would you have an orgasm in front of me and there's Whoa. one line that says you don't have to have sex to have an orgasm and at this very young age I can't pinpoint exactly how old I would have been but I was a tiddler toddler I knew that that was something exciting but also something taboo I'm actually kind of proud of the fact that Prince was one of my first sex yeah ones. that's awesome um, these days, I've actually named one of my sex tips after him in his honor. Um, I encourage people in couples to give each other a purple pass named after the man himself, um, which is um, in another of his tracks, Alphabet Street. He says, um, tonight, honey, I'm just not in the mood. So if you don't mind, I'd rather watch. And I think sometimes, yeah, I think it's very natural for couples to experience points in their relationship where one of them will uh, feel like their libido is higher than the other or they'll just have a night or a day when one person wants to get wiggy and jiggy and the other person is feeling dead as a doornail. And a good way of meeting each other in the middle is to say that you'd be very happy to watch your partner masturbate in front of you. Maybe you'll um, say some flattering, encouraging things about how hot they look or Maybe you'll read an erotic story to them or something to encourage them. But you, that way you don't have to participate physically and do anything that you don't feel comfortable with or that you don't consent to. But you're still having a shared, partnered sexual experience that can be satisfying and gratifying. So the purple pass. <laughs> I love add that. that. Add it to your rainbow of sexual experience. And I really um, feel like people... People don't really talk about like watching their partner masturbate because it's like kind of feels like, oh, well, masturbation is like this very private thing. So why would I do that with my partner? But I feel like it's such a an awesome thing that you can do. Like you said, if two people aren't really on the same page with exactly how they want to experience sex, but one person's really turned on and the other one isn't like I feel like that's a great, uh, a, yeah, halfway meet in the middle kind of point. I'm a big fan of mutual masturbation as well because we are the X-rated experts at how to pleasure ourselves, but we often don't demonstrate that to our partners. And unless you're dating a psychic, they're <laughs> unlikely to be able to intuitively know every single touch and technique that happens to turn you on. So giving them a demonstration or masturbating together is a brilliant way of communicating your own personal tastes. And um, if you're quite a bold person, uh, if you're quite a bold, confident person, then you might choose to do a full on what I call a show and tell where 
you tell your partner that you're going to put on a show for them um, you get them to sit across the room from you or, or whatever distance you feel comfortable with I cater to spectacle wearers and those with visual impairments as well um, and as well as just showing them the way you touch yourself if you can vocalize what you're doing what touches you're using what speed you're going how soft you're touching yourself or, or how much pressure you're applying not only can that verbalization that running commentary be absolutely hotter than magma covered in wasabi but it can also give them extra information to commit to memory and it can help them recall what they've been shown because let's face it if someone's masturbating it in front of you it's quite easy just to get distracted with how erotic that is right and forget to actually pay attention to the educational aspects of it um other people are a little bit more shy in the idea of self-pleasuring whilst, um, whilst talking about what they're doing in front of their partner makes them turn inside out with such force that they actually turn into black holes, suck in the entirety of the universe and kill all of mankind. And if that's you, uh, rather than taking down the world, um, there are other ways that you can masturbate that are perhaps... Perhaps make you feel a little bit less scrutinised. Um, if you wear a blindfold yourself, then that can. Um, a lot of people find that that helps them focus on their feelings, but also taking away the awareness that they're being watched can help them relax. When mm -hmm. you can't see your partner right up in your cooch or um, with their eyes trained on your on your groin as you strain away. <sighs> examining you like a rare Toby jug on the Antiques Roadshow, then that can help you chill out. Um, yes. Or there's another technique called the hide and peek where you ask your partner to just leave the bedroom for 10 minutes, go to the bathroom, make a drink, whatever it is they want to do. And in the meantime, you do whatever it is that you need to get in the mood. You might put your music on, light your candles if you're that kind of person, um, I don't know, have Seinfeld playing in the background, <laughs> have a tickle and then you get in your zone and start touching yourself. After around 10 minutes, your partner has permission to come back to the bedroom, but they're not allowed to enter. They're only allowed to watch you from behind the door. For the person touching themselves, that can still help them to feel like they're in a private space. And although they're being observed, they have the safety of the bedroom to themselves. And for the person doing the watching, it can add a real frisson of excitement because it feels quite voyeuristic and a little bit naughty. Um, so for some people, that really works. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. It sounds like I want to try that in my own life. Um, incredible. Um, and I'm wondering, OK, so Prince was kind of the OG kind Prince. of. Yeah. Prince was the OG of the ABC <laughs> of everything X-rated for me. Yeah. I love music it. Really, music really played a big part in my burgeoning sexuality as a young person. Uh, but it also did add to my confusion. I mean, uh, I was starting to become more sexually awakened in the 90s in the run up to my to my teenagehood. Uh, and at that time, like 1991, Salt and Peppers, Let's Talk About Sex dropped. Mm -hmm. um, TLC sort of was starting to form and Lisa left eye used to wear the, the condom over her left eye, hence the name. Um, Colour Me Bad were, were not only a terribly named band, um, but they came up out with I Want to Sex You Up. And I remember that coming on 
the radio in the car when I was with my mum and my mum kind of tutting and complaining about how this band were just using sex to try and be controversial. Um, in terms of films and TV, Eurotrash was a massive influence on me. Have you heard that? You no. Heard that? Um, it was presented by Jean-Paul Gaultier uh, and a guy called Antoine de Combe. And it was a very late night um, kind of gonzo show that involved these two presenters and a wider staff of um, investigative reporters going all around Europe and I think beyond as well and looking at swingers resorts and people painting with their penises and crazy sex clubs and weird fetishes. And it was all accompanied by this sort of um, tongue-in-cheek, end-of-the-peer, cheesy pantomime music. So it had a really irreverent comedic feel. Um, but it, I, I think it was always done with sort of... It was kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, comical look at the ridiculousness of sex, really, and everybody was in on the joke. Um, I, I, I actually found it a very healthy programme because it was titillating, but it was also taking the taking the mickey. It was very silly. And I think it, it did help to engender at quite a young age in me a sense that sex doesn't have to always be serious and that it's mm. okay to laugh at it sometimes, so long as that laughter comes from a point of laughing together rather than laughing at somebody. Um, and that attitude is very much reflected in the work I do with Radio 1 on Unexpected Fluids now, where we create a safe space for people to laugh at how comedic sex can accidentally be uh, and help them to chill out about the fact that it doesn't always have to be uh, an incredibly clinical or polished performance. Mm. Um, in terms of other TV shows, the very first lesbian kiss to ever take place uh, on English television before the 9pm watershed happened in 1994 on Brookside. And I remember the absolute fury in some newspapers that that Channel 4 had dared to show a, a loving embrace between two women in a romantic context. And that makes me sad to recall mm -hmm. that there was that it was considered so hugely controversial and and demonic at that point in time. But I'm also really proud that um, I would have been in my first year of high school, I think. I'm really proud that media and that TV was starting to move in that direction because I know that that meant that a lot of my friends who were uh, reflecting on their sexuality and exploring the fact that they might be queer, um, it gave them a reason to talk about it and it meant that they could see themselves modelled on, on the TV and, and in their living rooms, mm -hmm. the way that they were living had been brought into their living rooms or the way they aspired perhaps to live if they weren't out at that point. Um, that was followed by uh, a show set in Manchester and I was brought up in Macclesfield, just outside of Manchester, um, called Queer as Folk, which uh, followed primarily the lives of two young gay guys. And it was set on Canal Street and around the, the, Man the Manchester Gay Village, which um, from the age of about 14, 15, was where I would go clubbing with my friends. Oh. And, yeah, and to see the places that we went 
on TV like that and the gay communities that we moved in and the kind of characters and people that we, we were friends with, to see those represented in TV shows that we loved, I think gave a lot of my LGBTQ friends the reassurance they needed that they weren't alone. Um, I think TV and movies and music can be so important in letting people know that even if the place that they live, for whatever reason, doesn't support them in their sexuality or in the things that they're exploring, that they, there, there are other avenues, there are other, other people out there who they will connect with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's interesting because all of those shows like are that you're describing like 90s kind of shows and I'm wondering how you how you feel that that representation has changed to 2019, right? Because I feel like there are so many shows now on like in mainstream television and movies that are really depicting sex and sexuality in a more honest and authentic way. They're being more um, you know, they're being more intentional about being inclusive. And I'm wondering, um, what what do you think the good current shows are that young people are watching that kind of show gender identity and sex and relationships in, in a real way, besides sex education, of course? <laughs> I'm not too biased, don't worry. Um, one that I really enjoyed where it's easy to make a very direct parallel between the past and the present um, is the Netflix remake of She's Gotta Have It. Mm. Um, orig- that was based on a, a Spike Lee uh, original, uh, which was released in 1986. One of the greatest things about She's Gotta Have It is that the show revolves around the central protagonist who's called Nola Darling, who's a young, hot, black woman who is very free and liberated and celebrates her own sexuality and her desire not to have just one relationship with one guy, but to date multiple men and sleep with multiple men and experiment with multiple men all at the same time. And she is unabashed in how much she enjoys hanging out with those different characters and the different sorts of experiences that she has with them. Um, and I think it's, I think it was actually ahead of its time in its celebration of the fact that females can love and crave sex and don't always want to be monogamous. It really busts that myth that women just want to settle down and have one partner, whereas men want to sow their wild oats and play the field. However, in the 1986 version, there was a scene and uh, a warning for anyone listening here who might find um, rape or, or sexual trauma to be difficult for them. Um, there's a scene where one of Nola's boyfriends gets annoyed by her promiscuity and remarks that she doesn't want to be made love to. She just wants him to fuck her um, and he then forces himself on her. And even at the time, that scene was considered to be um, uh, perhaps unnecessary. Uh, and Spike Lee has spoken about it consequently and said that he regrets the way that he handled that and the mm. way that it sort of showed that character who was supposed to be very empowered essentially being punished by a man in her life for, in, for her liberated attitude to sex. In this, in the in the um, naughties version. Spike Lee was actually able to correct 
how he felt about what he'd done in the past. Mm -hmm. And not only did he remove that problematic, unnecessary scene that undid so much of the good work that he'd done with Nola's character, but he inserted a fresh one where she is, um, a guy catches her on the street and um, grabs hold of her wrists and she manages to break away from him. Um, But it's a frightening moment for her and the degree to which this upsets her and knocks her confidence and uh, makes her anxious and interrupts her sleep, even though she is depicted as a very strong, very self-assured, very don't-give-a-shit woman, that is continued throughout um, a number of episodes of the 10-part series. And if you compare the two, the 1986 version and the modern version, I, re- I really applaud that decision to show that even the most, I don't want to use the word minor, but honest, I, I guess, you know, that, that momentary frightening incident of being grabbed on the street, and even though she got away, mm-hmm. it really upsets this character. And I felt like that was the really important thing to show on modern TV that for a start, you can be a woman who loves sex and still, and it's still not okay for somebody to force a sexual experience upon you without your consent. And secondarily, that you don't have to... It, it, even, even experiences that don't involve full penetrative rape can be incredibly upsetting mm-hmm. and have lasting impact upon somebody's self-confidence and uh, an ability to feel okay in their own bodies and their own minds i think it's really important in modern society that we discuss the humongous impact that even a fleeting experience of non-consensual um assault can have upon a person Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i feel like yeah, we just don't really talk about like those minor, like you were describing. It's not minor because obviously everyone has like a different meter as to what bothers them and what, you know, is. It's hard to it's hard to explain, obviously, like it's hard to, it's hard to find the words. Yeah, I don't want to downplay the uh, the enormity of that kind of assault right but i guess that's what the show was doing in its remake it was saying hey you know don't discount the the awful impact that something like someone grabbing you on the street even mm-hmm. for a number of seconds can have upon because it's still assault and, you know like that's the bottom yeah. line is that like it shouldn't be like a uh, an assault Olympics, if you will, of like, well, yeah. because it wasn't this, then it's okay. Um, it should be, just be like, no, maybe just women and people shouldn't be touched in any way they don't want to be touched. Um, precisely, and, precisely. Yeah, and that's kind the of the point. There was that all assaults have negative impacts. Assault on any woman or any person has a negative impact. And that includes assaults on people who really love sex and who love sex with lots of different folks. Mm-hmm. Being uh, a self-proclaimed slut doesn't mean that it's still okay for somebody to touch you or or make comments about you or um, infringe upon your sexual self without your consent. And I really admire that remake for bringing that complicated, important message to the fore. Um, Some of the other pieces of media that have really enthralled me lately have done so for similar reasons where I think that they've 
Um, they've played with the complexity of sexuality. There was um, a film I saw a little while ago starring Chloe Grace Moretz called The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Oh, I haven't seen that one yet. I've heard it's really good. It's fantastic. It came out last year, 2018, um, and it was directed by uh, Desiree Akavan, who I've, I've interviewed, and she's a real badass kick-ass woman as well. Oh, cool. Uh, based on a, a 2012 novel by Emily Danforth. And it follows the story of um, Cameron, a young woman, who is sent to a gay conversion therapy center for teenagers called God's Promise. And it's run by a really strict woman called Dr. Lydia Marsh and her brother, Reverend Rick, um, who claims that the methods used in this conversion camp actually help to, quote unquote, cure him of his own homosexuality. Um, I went to see this with my co-host from Unexpected Fluids, Riyad Khalaf, who's a gay guy himself. And we both found that by the end of the film, um, spoiler alert, um, Cameron and her friends do actually end up getting away from the conversion camp, but not before one person um, really hurts themselves because they're experiencing such conflict and deep, deep depression about their own body and their own sexual identity. It's it's really deeply upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the film closes without the camp being shut down, without anyone really being told off, without there being a happy ending or a resolution. And and you don't even know whether the, the young people are going to be safe or are going to have a, um, a positive future or are even going to feel okay about their own sexuality. And my immediate response coming out of the cinema was one of disappointment because things hadn't been resolved in a way that was neat and that made me feel comfortable inside again and reassured. Mm -hmm. Um, But as me and Riyadh talked about it, we realised we'd been so set up for happy endings by Hollywood movies. And actually, one of the charming and important things about this film is that it depicts reality. And in reality, um, often people who have been sent to conversion camps don't come out the other side feeling righteous about who they are and managing to stick to their guns about their sexuality unshaken. And sometimes the people who run those camps, although I absolutely do not agree with what they're doing, can be deeply confused and damaged people themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the film really, for me, highlighted how, although my own feelings about LGBTQ rights are quite clear in my own head and that I believe that love is love, um, I think that, I think there's a huge temptation to be very black and white and very binary and say, well, people who don't support gay rights are bad people through and through. Mm. And in fact, sometimes they might have just be confused themselves or have been exposed to influences in their communities or their religious groups or in their families that have led to them believing things that they think they ought, even though they might actually be quite conflicted about those deep inside. And I, I wouldn't... How can I say this properly? Um, I just think it's... That film resonated for me because it highlighted how some of the debates which we tend to simplify 
on thing on platforms like Twitter into X equals bad, Y equals good, mm-hmm. uh, A equals right, B equals wrong. If you scratch the surface, there's a lot more complexity and nuance. And I think that once we start to talk to people in a little bit more depth, we perhaps have more of a chance of winning around some of the people who are anti-gay rights and anti-LGBTQ freedom, um, rather than just saying uh, you're an evil demon Mm -hmm. and you've got no love in your heart. By I think in some cases, by exploring the influences that those people might have been subject to, we have maybe a greater chance of of winning them round to what I believe the truth to be. Uh, but that's not to say that that is every gay person's job or every queer person's job to do that, because that's a huge amount of emotional labour. Mm-hmm. For me, as a straight person, I think that being a good ally sometimes means taking up the reins and doing that, doing that kind of work so that LGBTQ people don't always have to do the work of defending themselves mm-hmm. and having those difficult conversations. Yeah, it's a lot. It's definitely a lot of labor and a lot of kind of, you know, it's not easy for anyone. And this has come up a lot, actually, between like me and my friends, because we talk about like, oh, you know, like people who voted for Trump, we think are inherently, you know, like bad because they know, you know, that he's a racist, misogynist, sexist, like rapist. And like, how could, you know, anyone possibly vote for him? But when taking a step back, it's really important to be able to like have those conversations with people who don't agree with you so that you can try to meet in the middle and learn from each other's stories. And, and it's, it's better to, to have the conversation than to just cancel people because that's not helpful at all. I'm not a fan of cancel culture. Yeah. Again, I think it's far too binary. Um, Of course, there are examples of people where there is no debating with them or they're not ready to debate in a constructive, open-minded way uh, at this time. I certainly think that we all have a limited amount of energy and thus it is a sensible thing to do to pick our battles and to recognise the times when we have Uh, the energy to do that and the times when it might end up being productive. Um, But I think at those moments where it is possible to have a reasoned debate with someone who we don't agree with, it can be a very rewarding thing rather than just writing them off as someone who has too different a point of view from us for us ever to be able to have any common ground or win each other over in any manner. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Okay, so final final kind of question that I have is um, where do you see like representation in TV and movies and entertainment going? And like, what are you excited for as someone who has so many slashes in your title? You're doing so many <laughs> things. Um, you're you know you're a podcaster. You're a writer. You you just are yeah. You're just all over the place. And especially with your role <laughs> with like sex education and having you know a big influence on like what people are going to be seeing. Um, where where do you want like TV and and movies and entertainment to go when it comes to representations of sex? I feel like you're Santa and I'm giving you my Christmas wish list of all the things that I'd like media to deliver. Um, Okay, dear Father Christmas, uh, first of all, um, I would like to see more people with disabilities um, depicted as 
being desirable and having desire. Um, and I'd also like to see people who have disabilities playing a more uh, playing more roles in dramas where their disability isn't central to the plot line. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Breaking Bad did this really well. Uh, I watched R.J. Mitter's character. He played Walter Flynn, uh, Flynn White. Was it? No, he, so his name was, I think he was called Flynn. But Walter Jr., yeah. Walter Jr., right, yeah. To my, um, to my embarrassment, I have to admit, for the first few episodes of that, I was like, okay, this guy's got cerebral palsy. When is that going to have uh, an influence on the plot? This mm-hmm. must be part of the story, right? At some point, his disability is going to be central to what's happening. When I realized that it wasn't, I was ashamed of myself for that assumption, but I also thought it was an absolute revelation mm-hmm. that they hired RJ because he's a freaking brilliant actor and his disability did not play a part in the plot. I want to see more of that. That's I, a I great point. So admirable and so true. You know, I've got friends with disabilities and their disability, although, you know, sometimes we have to um, moderate what we do to make sure that they can join in fully. Um, that uh, Their disability isn't the central part of why we're pals, you know. Right. Um, okay, what else is on my wish list? I think a lot of sex scenes in films and TV are still very focused on penetration. So I'd really love to see the whole A to Z of all non-P and V sex mm-hmm. embraced more. Uh, one thing that I, I really would absolutely cheer until my lungs were outside of my body for is if there was ever pictured a scene of erectile dysfunction where it wasn't seen as a terrible thing or a disappointment for either party. Um, It would be so cool if on TV a guy couldn't get a hard-on for whatever reason and they carried on playing and had loads of fun anyway. Uh, And it wasn't seen as... um, the, the end of the story it would right. be so great or if there was some kind of non-penetrative action where it wasn't seen as a compromise or something that they were doing because penetrative sex was off the table for whatever reason um i'd love to see more toys for men in tv shows um we know from things like uh sex in the city causing an absolute rush on toys like the rampant rabbit vibrator or the pearl thong. I had one of those <laughs> things of pearls and um, I nipped my clitoris in what was essentially a, a an ill-advised genital necklace. <laughs> for me. Um, in, in more recent times, Broad City um, has uh, it featured scenes of pegging. Yes. And there's, I've had a lot more people um, ask me about strap-ons as a result. So we know that. Um, pop cultural shows like that have the huge ability to get people's interest in particular um, sex acts or sex toys to really peak. Um, I've never really seen a guy using a toy to masturbate with, a cis guy or, or anyone with a penis. It would actually be really cool to see trans toys featured on TV shows. Um, I work with a Japanese company called Tenga, um, who specialise in making masturbatory toys for people with penises. And they're so well-known and big in Japan that they even have their own energy drink. Oh, my God, <laughs> so that's awesome. 
yeah so essentially it's like the masturbation version of monster before you play with your monster um, but over here in the uk i think there's still quite a lot of stigma attached to to male masturbatory toys they're considered something that maybe you either only use if you're a pervert or a super geek who's obsessed with Japanese culture like mm-hmm. hentai and anime, or if you're a socially inept person who lives in their mum's basement and can't get a real <laughs> girlfriend, right. you know? Um, it could really help bust some taboos and open men's minds, I hope, to uh, all the different sensations and pleasures that are out there if a leading TV show showed a guy wanking with something other than his hand. I work with a German company as well called Womanizer who make clitoral toys that rather than just vibrating against the flesh, uh, which works for a lot of people, don't get me wrong. Um, often my bedroom is buzzing more than a beehive in a rave. Um, but the Womanizer uses a form of air pressure technology where it kind of pulses against the clitoris um, without actually touching it. And a lot of people find that if traditional vibrators make them feel numb or even a bit sore, the womanizer bypasses that and gives them amazing orgasms without that sense of being a bit chafed Mm -hmm. afterwards. And we've been working together to try and get womanizer on the TV somehow because they know the power that just one scene in a popular show can have at making a toy a cult product. Yeah. What else would I like to see? I loved Grace and Frankie on Netflix. Oh, God, it's one of my favorite shows. I love it so much. Me and my mum talk about it a lot. um, And it's actually really opened up some great conversations between the two of us. She sent me a lovely email the other day, actually. I'd recommended that she read a book by a friend of mine called Joan Price, who's a sex educator who specializes in writing books about uh, sex amongst older people. In fact, she's recently published an amazing book all about exploring sex after grief and after loss, because a lot of people feel a huge amount of guilt that they still have sexual desires and sexual appetites after they've lost the love of their lives. Mm. Um, And mum was talking about whether Joan would be interested in consulting on a tv show because she's recently done some work with an ethical pornographer called erica luss and she was mum was asking me you know could you write a show that's aimed at young people that sort of has a a grace and frankie vibe Mm -hmm. that facilitates discussions between older and younger people about their their sex lives and and maybe engenders a little bit more respect for older people. I think we still stigmatise and kind of, we we either fetishise or stigmatise sex amongst older people. If you look at pornography, it's always like a hot granny, (laughs) you know, it's something that is very much framed as being um, compelling in how disgusting it's supposed to be or right. uh, or fetishized by the huge taboo uh, of, of an older person daring to have a sex drive or or for anybody to dare to be attracted to somebody who's older um, and I, I'm I'm about to turn 40 shortly and whilst I wouldn't consider that massively old it has got me thinking about how stigmatized it is to still have desire as you age through your Mm, life mm -hmm. and 
given that we are an aging population and things like Viagra and HRT and better nutrition and better general health care and uh, you know, all, all of those things are feeding into the idea that we might both desire and have the ability to sustain uh, more active physical sex lives until later parts of our lives than, than has potentially been possible before. I think we need to do the groundwork now to, re- to remove shame from that. For sure. Absolutely. Oh, Alex, you've been such a wonderful, wonderful guest. Um, are there any like kind of last minute words of wisdom that you would like to share about sex in entertainment? Yeah. Um, I guess I'd just like to underline how important I think it is that we have realistic relatable and diverse sex scenes and scenes of romance in drama and in um in pop cultural series as well as just in documentaries uh and shows that set out um specifically to be educational um because i really think that it's those shows that really capture our imagination that have this humongous power to make us feel reassured about ourselves or to teach us lessons. We almost trust them more than we do something that that sets out very obviously to to be uh, a class or or to give instruction, you know. Um, I I think drama has particular power to lodge itself in people's minds and in people's hearts and start conversations as well that people find easy to access. Um, I spoke to my audience about the sex scenes or the the relationships that had really stuck in their minds that they'd seen on TV or on the big screen. And some people said kind of the more obvious ones, I guess. Lots of people said call me by their name had really... Mm made them feel like it was something they identified with. Uh, a few folks said Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Um, uh, one person cited a French film called 120 BPM, uh, which is all about um, AIDS activism in the 90s in France. I thoroughly recommend it, not least because it's really quite shocking to see how in relatively recent history, um, the gov- governmental uh, powers in developed countries still stigmatized HIV and AIDS so massively and refused to help communities. Uh, I now work quite a lot with a, um, a UK-based charity called the Terence Higgins Trust, and it's been my absolute joy to take part in campaigns that help to inform people that now modern HIV medications mean that once someone who is HIV positive has reduced their viral load, that's the amount of virus present in their bloodstream, to a level that's called undetectable um, using these medications, they actually cannot pass the virus on. Um, Forgive me, I actually find that quite a difficult thing to talk about without feeling rather upset because Mm. as someone born in the 90s, in the, the height of the AIDS crisis when people were dying, modern meds mean that people I care about very dearly are able to share their lives with me. And I want to see films and TV spread that wonderful, positive message about HIV positivity as far and wide as they can. 
120 BPM is great a great reminder about how far we've come and how far we still do have to go in terms of HIV activism. Um, but in addition to that, it also just has some really wonderful, tender, unflinching and sustained scenes of lovemaking between two men. It's not glossed over. It's not pornified. The camera lingers on two men having sex in a way that's really, really beautiful. Mm. Um, going to a completely different end of the spectrum, though, <laughs> one guy who's bisexual told me that the TV show that had really helped him see his own sexuality reflected uh, is a comedy show called What We Do in the Shadows. Have you heard of it? I, I've heard of the name, but I don't know what it's about. Okay, it, it, I think it's, this is a TV show that's made uh, off the basis of a film. It's about a group of vampires who live together, and it's really funny. It's a comedy show. So it's perhaps not where you'd expect someone to go, oh, this made me feel really cool about my sexuality, or I found that really hot. But he said um, there's a character called Laszlo who's bisexual, and um, within what we do in the shadows, he's presented as very proud and candid about his sexuality. Viewers are invited to laugh with but never at it, and it doesn't resort to stereotypes. His marriage to a woman is never called into question, um, and uh, his wife never, like, worries or comments about her husband's sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, this guy told me, treating bisexuality as such a non-issue was so refreshing. Plus, Laszlo looks like me. He's a normal bloke, not sexualized or some kind of comical caricature. I mean, I'm presuming this audience member doesn't suck the blood of other human beings, but hey, you do you. Um, <sighs> someone else told me that Norm and Marge Gunderson from the film Fargo were their absolute couple goals because they were middle-aged, content, caring, and happy. So for that, that really illustrates to me that TV shows and movies need to pay attention to the way that they depict relationships and sex, even if that's not the central theme of what they're doing, because they have such an ability to connect with people. That connection shouldn't be taken um, lightly. When, when you, with great power comes great responsibility, and I think media has a responsibility to do everything it can to promote greater sexual liberation, happiness, and health. Looking for a period game changer? Meet Lena, the reusable silicone cup that collects your monthly period blood. No odor, no leaks, and so comfortable you'll forget you're on your period. 90% of first-time Lena Cup users never go back to pads and tampons. Go to lenacup.com and use promo code SEXWITHDB to get $5 off your first order. Lena, a better period. Self-care is super important to us here at Sex Ed with DB. Luckily, we found a partner who cares about it just as much as we do. Say hey to Sweet Vibrations. Sweet Vibrations is an adult boutique out of sunny San Diego that encourages young people to educate themselves about sexual wellness and improve overall health. Everyone deserves their O, and Sweet Vibrations is committed to helping you find yours. All four of their buzzing beauties are under 50 bucks, so you don't have to break the bank. Go to www.sweetvibes.toys to buy yours today. Have you ever felt anxiety about having sex? Or experienced pain during intercourse? Emotions are deeply intertwined with sexual activity 
and anxiety, depression, and fear of intimacy can all contribute to painful sex. The good news is, now there is Millie, the gentlest vaginal dilator on the market. With a design that puts you in control, Millie can help reduce sex anxiety by breaking the negative cycle of muscle contraction that causes pain. Learn more at www.milliemedical.com. Our creator, producer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our assistant producer is Kathy Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Alana Rance. Our sound engineer is Oliver Devone. Our fundraising co-coordinator is Jamie Cooper. And our other fundraising co-coordinator slash content assistant is Callie Cochran. Our music is by Ben Sound and Hook Sounds. Thank you so much to our featured voices, sponsors, and our listeners. Tune in next time.